uh, we're going to go through our passage today in 1 Samuel 15, and it's a long chapter, 34 verses, and I'm going to go through all, go through them all, but we're going to do this very a uh, little bit different than we've done in the past. I'm just going to go through and explain as we go along what, what we're seeing here. And so um, if you have your scriptures or if you don't, there it's in the bulletin. I've also broken it down. Joanna put it in there really nicely so that you have sort of an outline that you can follow, a little bit of room underneath to jot in any notes that you may uh, want to uh, uh, write down. So what we've been talking about is a kingdom in search of the king. God had always had a plan for his people uh, to give them a king, a ruler, someone who could lead them and also defend them against the vagaries of this world and against their own sin. He was to lead them in an exemplary fashion. In other words, the king was to invite the prophets into the court. The prophets would speak the word of God. The king would obey and follow those words of God. And where there was sin or failure on the part of the people, they would go to the priesthood and they would move to the temple, make their sacrifices. And this is how the, the uh, nation and in a lot of ways the church works today. In our, this beautiful confession we did this morning from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of my favorites uh, is this, what is, how is Christ our Redeemer? He's our Redeemer because he fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. They're not three separate offices any longer. He embodies them all and performs them all for us. So let's start looking at this passage. And Saul, this king, this first king, was guilty of practicing what Dawson said last week. And I think what Dawson said about practicing outside religion is really the defining uh, expression of what is true faith. You can practice your faith externally. No one will know. In fact, you might look like the best church member ever. But there's a difference between practicing your faith externally and religiously in order to get something from God or to practice that faith internally where you are serving God, obeying Him, following Him just for Himself. Just because He's God, just because He's beautiful, because of who He is. And then our obedience would follow that. Our repentance would follow that. Our faith grounded in Him. And so by pointing out outside religion and inside religion and how Saul is this sadly an outside religion person and David, of course, is going to be uh, the, the foil for that, the opposite. And Jonathan, Saul's son, is this idealized character. This is, man, even Jonathan knows how to worship God and trust the Lord. All very important. So let's dive into this, and I've broken it down into three. I think it's in the, yeah, there you go. We're going to look at, at these three things, but we're going to do so as we go through. Devote to God, not devotion, not prayer, not your prayer life or anything, but devote to God. Secondly, devote to self. First one, what's mine is mine. The second one, 
What's yours is mine. And the third one, this devotion of God, what's mine is yours. And I think we see this all set up for us in chapter 15 because this is a pivotal transitional chapter in the long and sad reign of this King Saul. He reigned for over 40 years. He was a successful king in almost every respect except for this. Saul's outside religion, as Dawson told us, leads to ultimate disobedience. He doesn't trust the Lord. He self-glorifies, which you'll see in a moment. And it, it spells the stroke of final doom for his reign and for his kingdom. Now his eternal destiny, we don't know. I personally, this is just my own opinion, Saul was a covenant man. He was chosen by God. And so I believe that he was... Uh, a saint and uh, is going to be in heaven with us. And if he's not there, then I won't be there either. So anyway, but I really don't know. That's just my, my feelings. I, I identify with this man. He's a, he is deeply flawed and boy, are we deeply flawed. And a lot of the things he does, we do. And other kings that came after him, his descendants... Uh, and, and people in his tribe did the same things. Even the descendants of David did the same things. Practicing outside religion and not getting to the heart of their faith. Look, folks, we love you and we want you as people of Christ the King to grow in close to Jesus and let that become internal to where it becomes the, the gravitational pull of your life and that everything orbits around that. All of not only the blessings, but the troubles too. They have an anchor point in our great king, our prophet, and our priest. So I'm going to look at these three things. Start with verse 1. Listen, and I'll just explain as we're going. So you follow along, jot down whatever's important to you. One day Samuel said to Saul, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. As, he, as Moses led the people out of Egypt and they traveled to the south uh, of the Saudi Peninsula and they started making their way up to the Promised Land, there were tribes there. These were nomadic tribes, Amalekites. They were vicious warrior people. Moses sends them a message and he says to them, we'll pass through peacefully. We don't want any quarrel with you. And uh, we'll even give you stuff. Let us go through peacefully. Well, instead, they, they attack them surreptitiously and especially the hinder parts of the great caravan that was coming out of Egypt of the weak and the sick and the old and the young. And they massacred and killed. They were, they were horrible, horrible people. And God told Moses in Deuteronomy 27, to tell the people of Israel when they go into the land, at some point in the future, I'm going to settle accounts with them. And when I do, you are to go and destroy them. Look at verse 3. Now the time has come. Go completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Every man, woman, child, baby, cattle, sheep, goats, Camels, donkeys, 
everything they have. Now, I don't know. This is very troubling. And if you're saying, well, you know, God can do whatever He wants, we need to have a talk. You need to be on medication. That is not the, what this is telling us. This says nothing about God's justice or righteousness. This says a whole lot about the Amalekites. And so when people criticize our religion and our faith, our Christianity, they say, well, look at how bad, you know, God was, he's this, this horrible God of wrath and blah, blah. And, you know, they go on and describe him in all these ways and they miss the whole point. The point is the Amalekites were really bad people and God was determined to execute judgment upon them, which was his right. And the arm of his execution and judgment was his king. Now go and completely destroy the Amalekite nation. This word, completely destroy, I don't know what you have in your translation. This is from the NLT, the New Living, but in the uh, ESV, the New King James, the NASB, any translation you use will have different words, but it all comes from this word in Hebrew. And also interesting, it's the same in Arabic, the word harim, harim, or haram. Okay, something that is cursed. If you watch uh, some of the movies on TV and you see them talking with, you know, Arabs and they're talking about curses and stuff like that, which I do. I watch Lebanese soap operas. I love them. And, uh, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say to somebody, you know, you're haram, you're cursed, or you have a ban, or you're devoted to destruction. That's what he's talking about here in this, this word. And this was a practice of every nation in the ancient Near East and other parts of the world. You go in to take people, you don't leave anybody alive because if there's anybody alive, they'll come back and kill you. Now they did it for greedy reasons and for you know expansionist reasons, but not God. He is saying these people deserve judgment. I'm the king, I'm the judge. What's mine is mine. You respect that and you do as I tell you. I want them completely destroyed. I want them haram. I want them destroyed. Utterly. Leave nothing. God is exercising His absolute sovereign right. Now we don't like that and we want to cast dispersions on how, you know, how bad He is, but stop for a minute, back up and say, why would this God, we know so much about Him, graceful and love and merciful, why would He pronounce such a judgment? Well, it's not about God's being bad, it's about them being bad. And in order for the world to go forward, they needed to go, and he's not asking us to uh, put him in the dock and pass judgment on him, as if we would know the difference. I would just make myself innocent and everybody else guilty, yeah? Which is what Saul does. Amazing, the, the, the richness of this. We have this modern illusion in our culture today of autonomy, especially in the West. We, you know, we, are, we're, we, we own ourselves. We have self-ownership, self-determination, self-will, self-justification, self-righteousness, self-protection, all about me, 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 me. Individualism that is toxic. Not good individualism, but toxic individualism. Well, these people were not individualistic in the way that we are. They had a sense of community and ownership. And so if you belong to a group, 
and I told you this a few weeks ago, as the king went, so went the group. If the king was afraid and trembling and a coward, it was contagious and it would spread. But faith and love and generosity and kindness also are contagious. So the king was to lead his people in this way, all the while trusting God, absolutely. David did this, Saul never did. Partial obedience is not obedience at all, okay? Completely destroy them. Look at verses 4 through 9. Saul mobilized the army at Telium. There were 200,000 soldiers, 10,000 from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to the town of the Amalekites and they lay in wait. They were hiding and, you know, wait for them to come and they're going to attack. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites. This was another group of people that were favorable to Israel, uh, not only during their exodus, but all the time they lived there. And he sent a message to them and said, get out of town. You know, we're going to bomb this place, so you better go. And uh, the Kenites got out. So the Kenites packed up and left, and Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah to Shur, east of Egypt. Everything's good. He slaughtered them. But he captured Agag, Amalekite king, but he completely destroyed Haram, everybody else. And Saul and his men spared Agag and kept, listen, the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything that appealed to them, they kept it. And they utterly destroyed Haram. They made a sacrifice. They devoted to God everything that was worthless and of poor quality. So you can see right away what they're doing. This this is an unforgivable sin. And yet you're going to see how God handles it. It's just really something. Saul passes a point of no return. He did it. He started it with Dawson talked about this in chapter 14 with the battle with the uh, Philistines and and forbidding them to eat honey and all that and cost them a lot of lives and and an ultimate victory. This point of no return, there's no coming back from this one because of what he did. He did what we do and what we see in so many other parts of Scripture and I'll talk about in a second. True obedience True obedience is motivated by love, faith, loyalty, gratitude, dependence. And what that true obedience does is it reflects or expresses, listen folks, the value and the esteem and the regard that you have for the other person. In other words, it's not about you. Your eyes are so filled with it. You read the Psalms. David was so captured by the beauty and the glory of his Redeemer King, his Lord Jesus, his, his Father God up there, that he would sing these psalms and he would just pour his heart out because his, God was the object of his worship and devotion. And David did it when he sinned grievously, committed murder and adultery and all these other things, and he did it when he was being victimized and it was no, nothing was his fault. Think of that. Think of the power in your life if you had that singular human being 
who is also God that you can go to in your darkest depths, no matter what comes, to fight against the things in our lives that are so like greed or false religion, outside religion. How are you going to conquer that? You're only going to conquer it by going inside and find the glory and the esteem in the object, the another, someone outside of ourselves. If you're always here in your windshield, you're just going to be selfish. And we all hate those people, don't we? Say yes. We hate those people. We're not those people. We're the good people. That should have gotten a chuckle. Never mind. All right. As the king goes, so goes the nation. So here's the king. He's doing all these things. And what do the people do? They follow right along. Uh, uh, look, look at uh, uh, what happens here. They completely destroy only the worthless. Look at verse 10 through 14. Now the end of this first section. What's mine is mine. God said, this is mine. I want you to go deal with what's mine and bring it to me and sacrifice or devote it to destruction on the altar for me, not for you, not for you, this is mine, okay. The Lord said to Samuel, here in the background, Samuel's far away, and Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry, I repent, I, am, I wish I had never made Saul king. There's a lot of theological questions that go with that, does God change his mind and all that. If you have questions, you can come and talk to Dawson or myself or one of the elders, we'll be happy to talk to you about it, but I, we don't have time to go into it right now. But God's heart, as far as we can understand that, was deeply broken because of what Saul did. And he told Samuel, I'm sorry I ever made him king. Samuel, look at the next verse, Samuel was so grieved that he stayed up all night and he wept. You see, Samuel's grief and tears are an expression of God as well. Early the next morning... Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, listen, Saul went to Carmel to set up a monument to himself. So this victory, he goes to Carmel, he sets up this monument to himself. And then Samuel comes, look, Samuel finally found him and Saul greeted him cheerfully and he said, may the Lord bless you. Look at everything I've done for you. Look, look at all this. And in one of the greatest confrontational statements in all of Scripture, Samuel answers him and said, Then what is all this bleeding of sheep and lowing of cattle that I hear? What is this? Shocking irony. A monument to self cheerful, self-congratulatory. This is what happens, folks. Idolatry does this to us. It takes our eyes off of Jesus Christ, the true God, and it gets our eyes on something else in addition to Him. Saul never rejected God. He just wanted God to accept all his nonsense along with the good things he did. What is all this bleeding of sheep? What's mine is mine. God tells him, this is mine. I want you to go do it. Saul does exactly the opposite. He says, yeah, I'll give you the worthless and the poor, but I'm going to keep the best for myself and my men because if I give them stuff, they'll keep me as king. 
I don't, maybe you won't keep me as king, but I'll make sure that politically I can stay king. I'll, uh, I'll stroke my men and I'll give them, you know, their stuff and they will love me and they'll support me. That's what happens in the next section. Devoting to self or devoting to or sacrificing or placing under the ban what's yours. Saul is saying to God, what's yours is mine. Now, folks, I, look, don't ever say that. Don't think it. You will. You will say it and you will think it in different ways. But when you do, run to Jesus, man. Repent as fast as you can because that is danger. That's quicksand. It will take you down. What's, my, what's yours is mine. I deserve this. I've been a good churchgoer. I've given lots of money. I serve my church. I'm at church every Sunday. They have to push me out of the door, uh, in front of the door when they unlock the church. And I don't deserve this bad thing, or I deserve these good things, or, you know, I've raised my children up and they ought to be good, and I did all this stuff and I shouldn't have cancer, and blah, blah, blah. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. Oh, forget it. It's danger. God doesn't owe it. Mine is mine. You're mine, actually. I own you. You don't own yourself. And all you have is privileges from me and grace from me. Be thankful because I'm giving you everything. And you'll see what that everything is in a moment. It's mind-blowing. Here's Saul, chapter, uh, verse 15. It's true the army spared the best. Look, he's already blame-shifting the best of the sheep and goats, but they're going to sacrifice them to you. That makes it all right. I mean, after all, you're so gracious, I can sin, right? You'll overlook it. Chuck told me that you're full of grace and love. I can, I can do whatever I want as long as I trust you, right? Did Chuck say that to this church, Ugo? Say no, please, brother. Okay, I'll get your lunch later this afternoon. All right, so no. If you sin presuming on God's grace, you don't understand His grace, period. There's no nothing, no getting around that. But they're going to sacrifice them. We destroyed everything else. We haram everything else. Samuel said to Saul, you all know this verse, very famous. Stop. Mid-sentence, he just stops him rebukes him. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. And Saul says, what did he tell you? This guy is so clueless. It's so, it's so much like us. Maybe not you. I'm clueless half the time. I, I have to have my kids teach me how to use Twitter. And it, it's not even Twitter anymore. It's something other, some other alphabet. What? What is it? Oh, thank you, X. See? You just showed everybody how dumb I am. <laughs> no, I mean, think of it. We are so clueless about so many things, folks, and yet we think, I know, I know. You don't know better than God. I don't know better than God. What did he tell you? Listen to God's answer to him. It's priceless. Although you may think little of yourself, I made you king. I anointed you and I sent you on a mission and I told you, go haram, completely destroy, utterly devote 
to destruction. Put them on my altar. They're mine. I want those Amalekites and I want them all dead. I'll take care of the babies. Don't worry about them. I'll take care of any that are innocent. Don't you worry about them. But you execute my judgment. Until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed me? Why? You can almost hear God pleading with this man. Why? Why? Why didn't you why did you rush onto the plunder? Why did you do that? Why? Why? Let me ask you all this. What is the correct response when God comes to us and he crosses us and says, don't do this or do this and you don't do it or you disobey and he comes back to you and he wakes you up out of your slumber and says, why didn't you do that? What is the correct response? Do not say to God, well, I tried as hard as I could because that's a lie. Nobody tries as hard as they could ever in anything. No one does that. We try and sometimes we exert ourselves pretty, pretty good. But the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't resisted sin to the point of your death. How clueless are we? How clueless was this king? And what victims were his people? They, could, they didn't know what to do. He was supposed to be leading them. Listen. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Submission or humility before God is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft or divination. Stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. Because you've rejected the command of God, I reject you. Fearful. This should cause our knees to knock together, folks. Now I'm a pastor and I'm very holy and much holier than thou and that kind of thing. But I have to tell you, in my prayer time, when I'm talking to God and just like I talk to you sometimes, I say, you know, Lord, yikes. I don't know. My heart just doesn't, it's just not right. And I know if anybody knew this but you, they would reject me. Even my wife, is, and she's loving as can be, but even her, if she knew everything, even she would have a hard time. She'd have to hold her nose. This is a God who knows us down to the bottom. And he doesn't hold his nose. He, lo- he, he, he is always in our face. Repent. No, no repentance. What should have been the answer? Have mercy on me, O God, against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a new heart, O God. Remove this from me. No. He willfully confuses what belongs to God and thinks that it belongs to us. And this is the great exchange that we talked about when we went through the book of Romans. The great exchange of idolatry is exchanging the truth for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. It is taking ourselves and putting ourselves not in God's place, but in God's presence. Going into Him and saying, here, I love you, I'm going to serve you, i got all this stuff going on over here, but 
I have to have this and this and this. The cattle, the sheep, they're looking pretty good. Everything's looking good. I've got to have this stuff. Some of it may be good stuff. In addition to you. And what God's telling Saul is, no, everything belongs to me. And you've said, what's mine is yours. And I've said, what's mine is mine. And you've committed a sin of idolatry that cannot... There's nowhere to go from there. Where are you going to go? And that's what is so amazing about what happens next. You see, folks, remorse or being sorry for our sins is not repentance. You can have remorse without repentance, but you cannot have repentance without remorse. Yes? You can't. And Saul is sorry. He has remorse. He truly is sorry for what he did. No question. But he doesn't repent. He doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, because you blot out all my iniquities, you erase the stain of my sin, you wash me clean from my guilt, you purify. This is not what we're seeing. I sinned. I've done evil in your sight. You're right in what you say. Your judgment is just. Have mercy on me, a sinner. In Greek, it's actually have mercy on me, the sinner. They use a definite article. Not a sinner, the sinner. The guy, the tax collector beating is have mercy on me, the sinner. We don't see, we don't, we're blind, we're delusioned. We have these delusional fields and this distorted thinking that cause us to put something else in the room where God belongs utterly by himself. What's yours is mine. God help us. But look at what he does. And this is where we'll, we'll close with this. Just, I don't know. 24, verse 24, quickly. Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions, the Lord's command. I was afraid of the people. Okay, we can understand that. I did what they demanded. He's still blame shifting. Now go, please, please forgive my sin. Come back to me. Come with me. Let us go worship the Lord together. You see, Saul was savvy enough to know that if Samuel didn't go back with him, there was no more, there was no more way back Folks, there's no way back. There's no way back for you and me into the garden, into God's presence, into the presence of God. There is no way back unless He goes with us. Yeah? Like He told Moses on the mountain, no mediator, no me. God told Moses, no mediator, no me. He's begging Samuel, go back with me. Samuel said, I will not go back with you since you've rejected the Lord's command and he's rejected you as king. And Samuel turned to go. You know, they're having this really, it's pretty dramatic, this fight. 
and, and Saul is on his knees. Picture this, the king, all the armies out there, everybody's looking at this. And he's begging, saying, please stay, go back with me. The elders, they're all going to reject me. If you reject me, I have no hope. I have no way back. If you don't come back with me, they'll probably find another king. And Samuel's leaving, and he grabs the hem of Samuel's garment, and he rips it, and Samuel turns to him and said, just like you've ripped my garment, I will tear the kingdom from your hands and give it to someone better than you. What a blow. Man, if he ever said that to me, I would just fall apart. You know, that ought to remind you of something. A woman who had an issue of blood and was unclean for 12 years being rejected by everyone around her because she was unclean. She comes to Jesus and in a crowd, she reaches out and she touches what? The hem of his garment. Now in the entire Old Testament, if you touched, if you were unclean and you touched somebody else, what happened to them? They become unclean. The woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment and what happens to her? She's made clean. What's mine is yours. She didn't have to tear his garment. She didn't have to beg, although she was on her knees begging. But the reality is the clean one made her unclean the same way he does us. So here it is, folks. Listen. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, Bring Agag. And Samuel cut him into pieces. Saul and Samuel never see each other again. But notice what we often don't see Samuel did not want to go back with him. And something happened. I don't know what it is. It's not really written there, but something changed. And he did go back with him. If he hadn't gone back with him, Saul's life would have been over that day. But God in his grace and mercy, much like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you you were naked? What have you done? God holds back his judgment, even from Samuel. Yeah, the kingdom, you're going to lose the kingdom. But he goes back, Samuel Samuel goes back with Saul, and they worship the Lord together. Listen to this, and this is a summary, folks. We have to remember these things. First of all, because who our great king is now, that's all the difference in the world. I'm, I'm serving a king, and I hope you are too, and I hope you will. If you're not, I hope you'll bow your knee and say everything I... What's mine is yours, God, because everything is yours anyway. I hope you'll do that. Listen to this, what Eugene Peterson said about it. just stunned me. I, I'm still not over it. 
There are no ethical and cultural prerequisites to the work of salvation. He's talking about this horrific ethical and moral conundrum of haram, of bringing a curse on people. And how uneasy that makes us feel and discombobulates us and and we're just not sure. It sounds really horrible and it is. There are no ethical or cultural prerequisites to the work of salvation. God's sovereign purposes are worked out in the most depraved and brutal condition. The most depraved and brutal condition by God descending into them. Not criticizing them from above, but descending in. Yeah, the haram was bad. You know who the haram really, you know who was really haram? Jesus Christ. How do you escape those curses? I don't know how you are going to escape those curses. Whatever they are, and God help us. But I know for me in my household, like Joshua said, I'm not going to escape any other way then the curse goes on him and what's his is mine. That's it. You don't get back to God without that. You don't get back to him without Jesus saying, you really messed up. I'll go back with you. And I'll be haram for you. God's son, the true king, he takes the he he's devoted he's the sacrifice he's on the altar for you and I and so our obedience folks should be a joy and a delight to us an honor to serve him and when we mess up an honor to be able to repent and come back to him and start up again will you trust him i hope you will let's pray father thank you for your kindness a lot to take in but as we come to this table and we look on the bread and the wine that is here to feed us in our hearts by faith oh boy I hope we will remember your son Jesus our king that's the purpose of this sacrament to recall that while a meal is is something joyous and wonderful it also denotes something dark and painful the body and blood of our savior Please help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.